All right, and we should be live here. Welcome to Wealthion. I'm Wealthion founder Adam Taggart, welcoming you to a special event today. Uh, today, we are joined by a uh, tax superstar, Tom Wilwright, who was on this channel a few weeks ago, uh, really just giving an overview about the huge difference that a good tax partner can make uh, in reducing your tax cost footprint and saving you a lot of money. Tom was generous enough, given the very strong positive feedback we had from that video, uh, to make himself available today uh, just to kind of do and ask anything. So, um, you know, everybody watching here live can ask whatever questions they want. I will be moderating and trying to pull the, the diamonds out of the, uh, the stream here uh, and, uh, and let Tom answer as many questions as we can get through in the next, you know, 45 minutes or so. Um, Tom, thanks so much for joining us. Always happy to be with you, Adam. It's always a pleasure. All right. Well, again, thanks for coming on earlier, Tom. That was a great uh, discussion that we had. And, and folks, if, if if you're new to Tom, if, if you're tuning in for the first time and just getting to meet him through this uh, this live Q&A event, highly recommend later on you go and you watch that video. Tom and I get, get really deep um, into, again, the benefits that a good accountant can offer uh, an individual household, individual investor. Uh, and I give Tom a lot of time to, to go very deep into the discussion. So un unlike today, where I'm going to be throwing a ton of questions at him that he can only, you know, have a minute or two to answer. Uh, he really got to, to tell his full story in that video. Um, all right. Uh, so folks, I see people already beginning to ask their questions there in the live chat. Please do. Like I said, I'll start pulling them out of there. Uh, but Tom, just a couple of quick questions uh, to get you started here. Um, <clears throat> maybe, you know, at first, um, you know, we talked uh, in the earlier video where you said, look, if you really want to get the most out of your, your accounting partner, way better to sit down with them at the beginning of the year versus the end of the year. And, and I'll, I'll let you talk in a bit about specifically things that you should be talking with your tax advisor about at the beginning of the year. Um, but right now we're in tax season and a lot of people are scrambling to get their returns done or maybe the early birds just got theirs in. Um, but what are the most common um, opportunities you see here at the end of the game, when people come and they dump their, you know, shoebox full of receipts and paperwork <laughs> on, on their accountant and say, hey, help me save some taxes here in the next, you know, week or two while we, we get my, my returns filed. Yeah, there are actually some simple things that I actually see people miss all the time. And a lot of that is, Adam, a result of actually um, recommendations from their tax advisor. So it's shocking that they're getting this misinformation. The first one, and I think the most important one is, is the home office deduction. So if you have a business or you're an investor in say real estate, for example, um, not, a, not an investor, you know, not a buy, hold and, and uh, uh, type investor in the stock market. But if you're a, uh, an investor in real estate or um, something else where you it's really more of an active business, then a home office deduction is actually huge. And it's not just huge because of the deductions for the home office itself, which can sometimes seem not that much, but it also increases your automobile deduction. So which is the other one that I see people miss, because if you have if you don't have a home office, then the first trip of the day is always a commute and not deductible. And the last trip of the day is a commute, not deductible. And that's probably 50% of the driving you do. Whereas if you have a home office, your commute is literally 30 feet from your kitchen to your home office. And then from your home office to that first appointment or to your 
office where you meet with uh, clients or meet with um, uh, staff, that's deductible. And same with the last one home, because last one home, you're coming home to your home office, you're working in your home office, and then you're traveling the other 30 feet back to your kitchen. And so uh, I actually literally can double your automobile deduction, uh, expense deduction by having a home office. So those are the, I think those are the big two. I think a third one is meals, um, particularly in 2022, because in 2022, meals were 100%. They're business meals, um, actually at a restaurant, uh, then you get a hundred percent deduction for the cost of those meals. And that includes yours and the person you're with, as long as they're business meals. And then of course, the, 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 the other thing that I think is uh, really important is uh, making sure you've got all this well-documented, but those would be the, those would be really the top three plus the documentation. Okay. Um, so first documentation. Um, so let's say you go on a business lunch and you want to document that uh, obviously you get the receipt um, so you should store that. What, what else should you do? Should you write down who you were with? Do you need to say so what you guys you are actually talking need, about? You, you do. It's actually who, what, when, where, and why. Just think of think of that. And you've got to put who you're with, what you discussed that had the business purpose. Okay. Um, so that's kind of the what and the why. And then the the, the when is, and, and the how are actually on the receipt already. Right. So you don't have to add those. And then you want to scan the receipt. Whatever you do, don't don't keep physical receipts because they'll fade. And by the time they you get do. audited, there'll be blank pieces of paper. So they need to be scanned. Why, why do they do that? Is that just because they, they it's cheap paper and they're trying to it, save cost or? Yep. It's just cheap paper. Okay. Just the way it's printed. The IRS. Yeah, just fades. <laughs> okay. The, the IRS just isn't secretly sending them disappearing <laughs> receipts so that it can get you in the audit. Um, okay. So, um, you talk about home office deduction, auto deduction. So this is where you basically say, hey, um, I'm doing work out of the home and therefore some percentage of uh, my rent, we'll say, or my my car expenses um, should be deducted as a result because they're for business. Um, how does one determine that? Is it kind of finger to the wind? Is there a formula? There's actually three formulas. You can choose from three formulas. Um, one is a very simplified formula. You don't want to use that one. That will never be the best one. Um, another one is the one most people use, which is square footage, which means you take the square footage of your home office and divide it by the square footage of your home. Um, we don't use that one. Um, the IRS also allows a third one, which is number of rooms. So as long as your rooms are somewhat similar in size, um, then you can take actually, if let's say you have one home office, and let's say you have 10 rooms, then that's one-tenth um, of, the, of the space. Now, we don't include, typically you're not include hallways. They're not a room. And you're not include bathrooms. And because of that, um, that common area space not being included, you typically end up with about twice as much deduction or more if you do number of rooms versus you do um, square footage. Huh. Okay. Um, and then... Uh... For car, I'm guessing you you keep some sort of log, right? You do. For, for your car, you actually do have to track what uh, miles are business and what miles are um, not business. So you actually are tracking total miles and business miles. Those are the two you have to track. There are apps out there, if you don't mind the the app provider, knowing where you are all the time, like, you know, like we 
people don't know where you are anyway. But um, if you don't mind them tracking that, then then those apps uh, work just fine. And they're they're really easy. Or you can actually just write down mileage. Um, you can keep track of that. Uh, but at the beginning of the year, you do need to look, okay, what's my odometer at the beginning of the year? What's the odometer at the end of the year? So that you know what the total miles are. That's the easy way to do that. And then you just track the business miles. Okay. Um, and I'm just curious, is it is it better to do it one way versus the other, which is when I'm starting the trip, I write down the odometer. When I end the trip, I write down the odometer. Or is it just better to just say I took 15 miles? What, whatever's easiest for you. I mean, the, the IRS would love you to love to see the odometer reading. Um, mm -hmm. And that's what you would get using one of the apps. Um, they actually do that. You know, they track that. Um, but I don't think it's required at all. Okay. Okay. So for these home office deductions and other deductions, do, do you have to have a business entity to be able you to claim them? You, you, you don't. Now, I'm going to tell you you're better off with a business entity, and I'll tell you why. Um, as long as you have a business, okay? Um, let's say that you even have rental properties and you put them on your Schedule E, which is you know your personal tax return. Um, you can still take the home office deductions. Same if you have a, let's say you have a sole proprietorship and it's reported on Schedule C. You can take home office deductions. If you do that and you don't have an entity, then you actually have to fill out a form telling the IRS that you have home office deduction and explaining the home office deduction. If you have an entity, there is actually no home office deduction form for the entity. And all you do is reimburse yourself and call it office expense. So the reason, one of the reasons I always like an entity, even if you're, you know, just starting out is because if you have an entity, you don't have to tell the IRS you have a home office. And while there is some, um, audit exposure. If you have a home office, there's a much more audit exposure. If you have a schedule C, a sole proprietorship. So you actually eliminate both the schedule C audit risk, which is about five times, um, a regular, uh, an entity would be, and you eliminate the home office deduction, um, identification, uh, simply by having an entity. So you can actually limit a lot of your, uh, exposure by using entities instead of putting on your personal return. Okay. And Tom, we maybe cracked open Pandora's box here because I'm seeing a ton of questions about all this, which is which is good. Let, let me ask one about an entity for a second, though, around taxes. So if you, if you let's say you have an LLC, right, mm -hmm. um, and you are doing work out of the house, um, can you charge your LLC rent? And if so, does that have to be on the same formula as as the one room out of 10? Or can you charge it sort of a market rent? Okay, so I'm going to back you up just a little bit there and talk about what an LLC is and what it isn't. An okay. LLC, a limited liability company, is a legal entity. It is not an entity for tax purposes um, by itself. So in other words, there's no such thing. If you look in the tax law, there's no place it talks about LLCs or limited liability companies. You get to choose how you tax an LLC. So you can choose to be a C corporation, an S corporation, a partnership. Um, you, you can choose how to tax your LLC. So that's the first thing you have to do. You have to choose. So let's say you choose to tax your LLC 
as an S corporation, then you're really an S corporation for tax purposes. You're not an LLC for tax purposes. You're an S corporation. If you are a, decide to be taxed as a partnership, like you would, for example, if you had rental properties and had multiple owners of those rental properties, then you'd want to be a partnership and may even want to be a limited partnership. But for tax purposes, you get to choose. But for um, legal purposes, it's an LLC. So that's number one. So remind me, number two question, Adam. Oh, the number two question was, can you can you tax your business entity, LLC in this case? Uh, not tax, I'm sorry. Can you charge it like a market rent oh, for operating yeah. out so, of your house? So, so on the rent, you, you, you can, but you don't want to. There's no benefit to doing that. What you're going to do is you're actually going to re you're going to take your home office deduction and reimburse yourself. Um, because remember, if you charge yourself rent, you're actually taking the deduction, but you're picking up the income. And so that's a zero sum game, right? I mean, you're, you're no better off um, charging yourself rent. So what you, what's better is to just, is to just calculate the home office deduction at the entity level and then reimburse yourself for that amount. And then the reimbursement's not taxable, but but the expense um, is deductible to the entity. Got it, okay. Um, couple of sort of specific questions here that I'm gonna pull up here. Uh, dink, 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 dink. Rob says, all right, if I've got like an open floor plan, living room, kitchen, dining room, you know, with no walls. Is that all one room? <laughs> well, remember that the IRS says that you're, in order to use this rule, your rooms have to be approximately the same size. So uh, my guess point, is right. no. And in fact, we don't. We treat the living room, kitchen, um, dining room as as three separate rooms. Now, frequently your living room, you know, a, a dining room, at least the way houses used to be built, a dining room, was a dining room was a completely separate room, right? It wasn't connected to the living room. I would say the kitchen, the eating area in the kitchen is part of the kitchen. I would say that's not a separate room. But if you have, a, yes, a separate dining room, then that separate dining room would be its own room. Okay. Um, some of these are, are sort of specific, but I'm guessing others have similar questions. So Melissa here, it says... Can home office owners deduct coffee expenses or meals eaten in the home office while working? Well, I I, I think the coffee expenses, uh, you know, as long as they're they're de minimis, they're a small amount, and and you could probably take those. Um, the the meals eaten in the home, no, no, you don't get to take those. You're eating those at home. There's no business purpose for that meal, and because um, you're going to eat that meal anyway. So there's no, there's no deduction for eating a meal in your home office. I would suggest get out of your home office, take a client to lunch or a prospect to lunch, and then you get to deduct it. Got it. And uh, so it sounds like if you're, you're working out of your normal office or home office, meals are not deductible. If they're solo, if there's a business purpose, then yes. If I take it, if you're doing a business trip, uh, can you deduct meal expenses on the road? Y you can. And remember beginning, um, so for in 2023, going forward, we're back to the 50% rule. So um, any meals out of the home are, um, are still 50%. Um, but you can, yeah, you can deduct all of your travel as long as now travel is another one of those uh, expenses that people sometimes forget about. Um, the, to be deductible, the primary purpose of the travel has to be business. 
And it has to be business you're doing in that location. So in other words, you can't just take your laptop to Hawaii, work on your laptop in Hawaii and call that a, bu a business travel. No, that's personal travel. Um, the laptop may still be business and you might have an inter you might have to pay for Wi-Fi and that would be deductible as business, but the travel itself would not be. Um, and actually the Wi-Fi would not either because that's an expense that you're incurring just because you're on vacation, not because you're there for business. But let's say instead you're meeting with prospects, clients. If you're a real estate investor, you're looking at real estate in the location or you're going to a seminar, you know, for continuing education, then those um, those travel expenses are going to be deductible so long as more than half the day of a normal work day is spent on business. So here's, let me, let me give you an example of just, we, we know how to work these rules as tax people. Years ago, when I was in industry, I was president of the local chapter of the Tax Executives Institute. Well, this is industry um, tax directors. And um, uh, we would have our, our annual seminars and we would literally go to class for four and a half hours a day. And the rest of the day we had off to do whatever we want, or we'd have activity because <laughs> that. that is the rule. And, 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 the, and the tax executives figured that out pretty quick that that's the rule. So, you know, and by the way, weekends, so you can, you could start your seminar on a Thursday end it on a Monday, you'd get the whole weekend without having to work and you'd get that um, deductible too. Um, because it would be part of the business trip. Okay, um, so let me let me dig into that a little bit. So uh, let's use the Hawaii example, right? Yeah. I hop on a plane, I go to Hawaii, um, I stay in a hotel. Um, sounds like as long as I, there's a business purpose for the trip, right? Uh, uh, some meetings with some Hawaii-based business partners or seminar or whatever, then the plane travel's covered, right? Not like a fraction, but like the plane travel's covered. Right. And then for my lodging, is it just covered for the days I'm having those meetings or the day of the seminar or, or for the whole trip? Again, if, if you're traveling domestically, okay, within the U.S., it's, um, it's all or nothing. So that's four and a half hours a day. So in other words, you can't go one day, say, and have a seminar for one day and two days are pleasure. If that's the case, you're out. You have no business. Okay. Now you could, the cost of the, the trout, the cost of the, um, uh, seminar itself. Yes. But the lodging maybe, maybe for the one day, but remember it's an all or nothing. So uh, you, it's either all business or all personal. Um, if you're traveling overseas, it's proportionate. If you're traveling overseas, it's how much time and, and it's not that four and a half hours. You still have to have a primary purpose being business, but it's proportionate. So if you go to Europe, for example, let, I mean, for example, I travel, around the world as, as you do to speak. Okay. Well, when I'm traveling to speak, most of the time I'm, I'm really, it's, it's not vacation at all. If I spent, you know, like a, a, a week, uh, doing vacation that week I spend doing vacation would not be deductible. Now the travel to and from would be because I would have to do that for the business. Um, but the, but the, but the lodging, the meals, while I'm, you know, there having fun is certainly not deductible. Okay. Okay. Um, it's, uh, it, it, it's, 
you, I'm trying to remember the term you used when we were talking earlier, but but obviously, like record keeping is just super important in all this. Uh, documentation, stuff. yes, yeah. Uh, we like to say um, at WealthAbility, if if you pretend to document, you get a pretend deduction. <laughs> okay, <laughs> I think maybe that was I was, was what I was trying to remember here. Um, <clears throat> so, for somebody say who owns rental property, so let's say you owned a rental property in Hawaii. Um, and you were going there to check on it. Um, conceivably, is that a good is, is that is, is that a good way to sort of say, hey, I was there, I was checking my property out. As and long as you're spending four and a half hours a day. So <laughs> remember, it is daily. You have to spend four and a half hours of every workday doing business. If you spend three and a half hours every workday doing business, or you spend one day doing work uh, doing business, it doesn't qualify. Okay, so it's all or none. All right, and not to get the weeds too much, but like, how would you prove that to the IRS? Would you just pull out your daily calendar and say, oh, I was at the house from you, you, 9 a.m. to 2 p.m.? So this is actually a good reminder. Um, remember that the general rule on, on deductions is nothing's deductible. General rule is nothing's deductible. So you have to prove it's deductible. So that means you would have to prove that you had you know, this meeting, you did this during this day, you do need to keep a log. Absolutely. You want to have a record of who you talked to, what you were doing, um, how are you doing it, when you were doing it. You want to keep, you, you need to keep very good records on that. Um, you know, if you're just going to the seminar, it's easy because you can pull up the seminars. Yeah, hours of the seminar. Yeah. yeah. You can pull up the seminar agenda, right? But if you're, um, you know, like a rental property, you you'd ha you have to prove it. Okay, and, and for for that this type of stuff, um, would the IRS you know accept let's say like a printout of a a Google Calendar or an Outlook Calendar, or whatever? We just said, hey, these were all my meetings, or this is where I well, spent my day. This is this is where. <laughs> so I can tell you a quick story about this. This is where the right tax advisor is going to make all the difference. Um, I had a, a a friend years ago who um, called me up and said, I'm in trouble. I've got an IRS audit and um, I thought it was all going to be handled by my accountant, um, my CPA, but they turned over way more information than the um, auditor really had asked for. And now it's like blown up to this huge audit. Can you handle it for me? And I said, yeah, well, uh, under two conditions, one, you do everything I tell you to do. And, and two, um, you pay my uh, my full rate fees because I don't discount fees for an audit. Mm -hmm. and, and she said, fine. So her her issue was this real estate professional issue, which is a big issue that IRS will always challenge. And documentation is another big issue that they will always challenge. And they'll always challenge travel. They'll always challenge seminars, et cetera. So I sat down with a, so real estate professional, you need a you need some kind of log, right? So same, same issue. And I sat down with the, uh, with the agent that, sorry, the auditor and uh, the client had provided an Excel spreadsheet and said, well, I, I called, you know, I had this call. I spent this much time on calls. I spent this much time uh, 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 doing emails. And the auditor said, well, emails and phone calls don't count. And I said, I looked at him and I said, that is great news. And he goes, what do you mean? I said, well, that means that my CPA practice, I'm a passive investor in my CPA practice and I can offset it with passive deductions because all I do is phone and email. He says, no, 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 that's not what I meant. What he wanted was very specific. 
who'd they call? Um, what did they talk about? All of those. So you need to be, and once we did that, by the way, I went back to the client, said, you need to fill this out. You need to be much more specific. Once she did that, the auditor said it was fine. So um, they will accept it. Um, uh, they should accept it. It depends on the auditor and it depends on, uh, it actually depends on your tax advisor who's handling the audit for you. Gosh. And like, I don't even know just tactically or practically, like if you had to go back in your phone records, how long does, I mean, most phones delete them after a certain amount. Do you, do you call your carrier and say, please, can you give me a readout? I guess you go through your. Well, your I'll tell you account. what you do. You, you do it. You do it while you're doing it. Okay. So yeah. you don't go back. You, you maintain what we call contemporaneous records. Now, technically you're not required to do that, but practically it's the only way to do it. So you just do it as you go. It doesn't take much time if you do it as you go. And, um, and, and as long as you do that, the IRS should accept it. No problem. Okay. So this, this does sound sort of like a best practice, right? So obviously keep, mm -hmm. keep all your receipts, keep track of everything, but it sounds like you should be dedicating, I don't know what, you know, an afternoon, a month or something like that to just make sure you've kind of logged everything that you're going to claim as a deduction for the month. Uh, you can do that. Or I, I just do it as you go. I mean, it's really easy as you go. If, if you get into a routine, I mean, for example, let's take uh, your receipts. Easiest way to do that is have a credit card dedicated to that business, yeah. right? In so the name of the business. And, yeah. and then, and then it's so much easier. And then what you do is you, you write on the receipt, you scan it. Okay. Or you give it to your assistant, they scan it. And then, then you're done. Then you write, you might, you know, you keep uh, a log of your time. If you're traveling, you definitely need to keep that as you go and you're going to spend, and it's, I mean, I'm talking about 10 minutes, 10 minutes is going to take, it's not going to take a whole lot of time. If you do it at this on that day, if you, even if you do it at the end of the month, I mean, I don't know about you, Adam, I, I have what's called the, I call 2020 memory. I, yeah, I remember anything less than 20 seconds ago or more than 20 years ago. Okay. Um, but in between, <laughs> I'm not so good. <laughs> All right. Um, we have a question here from Rob saying, is there a scanning software that you recommend in particular? There's several, there's several out there. Um, I, I actually, um, there's some that will actually scan and file for you. Um, I would just find one that you like, just find one that works for you. Just go to the app store. And, okay. And I, I, I will mention to, to Rob that, uh, this, the, you know, wealthy on the mother business we plug into, uh, use Expensify, um, which there you nice. go. It's, yeah. And it, it, in most receipts, um, <clears throat> most digital receipts get automatically imported in there, which is nice. Um, okay. So let's see here. Um, a whole bunch of questions that's coming up here. <laughs> um, let's see here. Uh, gosh, there's a ton. Um, well, here, let me ask you this before we, we get into some of these. Um, <clears throat> so we've been talking sort of about uh, the deduction side of things. Um, and you gave a bunch of um, big deductions that maybe a lot of people don't necessarily uh, make the full use of. Um, you've got a great chart in your book here, your book, Tax-Free Wealth, which everybody should go get. And we talked about this on the earlier video. Um, but you, you have examples of possible deductions. And then you have one as just sort of the regular person normally. And then obviously the, the many more you get when, when a business comes in. On the regular person side, in addition to the ones we talked about, which were still kind of business related, 
it looks like the main deductions are mortgage interest, property taxes, charitable donations, and personal exemptions, right? That's um, it. That's all there is anymore. Actually, personal exemptions, we don't even have personal exemptions anymore. We have a standard deduction or we have itemized deductions. We have no personal exemptions anymore. So um, that's actually pre, to you know, that that that's pre the new law. We don't really have personal exemptions. We think we do, but it's really a standard deduction. Okay. Um, and in that bucket of personal exemptions now, standard deduction or itemized, is that where like dependents come in and stuff like that? Yeah, dependents, there's no deduction for dependents anymore. So either you could get a child tax credit if they're under a certain age, your income's under a certain age, but there is no deduction for children anymore. It's all part of your standard deduction. And if you itemize, okay. you lose out completely on, on, on basically on, on your kids. You get nothing. Okay. Um, and when, when would, just for people who don't fully understand all this stuff, when, when would somebody itemize versus take the standard? Deduction? Well, when it's any software you use, any, any uh, uh, tax preparer you use, they're going to automatically optimize it. So for an, a single person, it's about $13,000. So if you have itemized deductions, that's mortgage interest, state tax, state and local taxes, and charitable contributions, if they're more than $13,000, or $26,000 if you're married, then um, you take the itemized deductions. If it's less, you take the standard deduction. Got so it. you take whichever is greater. All right. So it's now, like it's a, a, a th just one note here, Adam. Um, uh, states don't necessarily follow these rules. So you might, for example, in Arizona, where I live, um, the state allows full deductions for medical but on federal, you have to exceed this threshold. And mm -hmm. so I take deductions for the state, but I don't take them for federal. So remember, state taxes are they're a pretty big number, especially if you live someplace like California or New York like, or a place like that. Um, they can be, you know, half of your um, federal taxes. So you want to make sure that um, talk to your tax preparer about that and make sure that, you know, just because you, you didn't itemize on your federal return, you may still want to do it on your state return. Okay, important. All right, so we were sort of talking about deductions there. On the other side, there's sort of ways to shield income, right? This is like putting mm -hmm. it in simple ways for most people are like putting into a retirement account. Sure. Right, or maybe a health savings account, things like that. Um, I, I guess my question on this is just sort of, you know, what are the general things that people should be making sure they're making the most of before we get to some of the esoteric investing stuff? Well, I definitely think the H, the HSA, the health savings account is a big one because again, um, you've got such a, such a big threshold before you get to deduct your medical that you have no threshold with a health savings plan. So if your company has a health savings plan available, uh, a health savings account available, then you should absolutely maximize that every single year. Um, that's the easy one because that's not money out of your pocket. You're just putting money into a your own fund and you're, and you're reimbursing yourself. So that's an easy one. Um, you know, and then if it depends on your investment philosophy, frankly, on whether you max out your 401k or not, or use an IRA or other or not. Um, in my book, the win-win wealth strategy, I actually look at the benefits of uh, qualified retirement plans like a pension plan, 
401k IRA. And they can be, they, th that's absolutely better than sticking the money in your bank account. Um, there are some other things. If you're a real estate investor, et cetera, you don't want to do that inside your IRA or your 401k. So it really depends on how you're investing and what you're investing in on whether you actually do the 401k or put money into a, a pension or profit sharing plan. Okay. Um, all right, great. And, and uh, you know, a topic we'll get to near the end here, just to make sure I give you the chance to mention it for folks is there are types of investments that you can make um, that can substantially uh, lower your taxable income. Um, Tom and I talked about those sort of at length in the earlier video, but I will give Tom a chance to, to talk about those. But first, I want to I want to uh, get as many of these questions here as I can. Um, Let's see here. Uh, da, 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 da. Oh, Let's by see. the way, okay. Yeah. So let me just add this: if you sure. are, if you're investing primarily in the stock market or stocks and bonds, absolutely, you want to max out your four hundred one k. You want to max out your pension plan, your IRA. That's a no-brainer. Stocks and bonds are absolutely best inside what we call a qualified plan or a qualified retirement plan. So I just, let me, let me start there. Yes, there are investments that don't belong inside an IRA or 401k, but if you're investing in the stock market, you invest in bonds, you're investing in interest bearing accounts, do it inside your IRA 401k and make sure you max those out. Okay. And can you just give a, a, an example of one that's generally not good to hold inside a qualified account? Yeah, best one is rental real estate. Do not hold that inside a qualified account. Is, is that because you can't benefit from all the tax? Yeah, you, you lose the tax it benefits. Is. And when you pull yeah. the money out, it's going to be taxable. And, you know, if you're doing rental real estate, you should never pay tax on, on rental real estate. So that's a it's a permanent versus a temporary savings. On top of that, your retirement plan, your income comes out as ordinary income, which is your highest taxed income. Whereas uh, if you're investing in real estate, for example, and you sell it, you get capital gains rates, which is half what the the, the maximum rate is. So yeah, there's no, I, I think, I don't say never, but it's very rare that it makes sense to own investment real estate inside an IRA 401k. That would be one. Uh, uh, energy investment, oil and gas. I wouldn't own inside an IRA 401k. Um, business, definitely, you can't. Actually, you can't own one. Um, the the tax court's been very clear on that. So really, it's it's those things that are true passive income, what we call portfolio income in the tax business, which produce interest and dividends primarily, and then capital gains on appreciation. Like, um, even though yes, you're pulling out a higher rate because you're deferring it so long that it can still make up for, um, you know, pulling it out at those higher rates when you retire. Um, but remember also, you do have to pull it out eventually, and they've got new rules on that. And you can't just pass it on to your kids and your grandkids and let it defer forever. You you do have to pull it out. Okay. And and just because we cracked this topic open, um, I, I don't believe you can own um, really anything in there um, that you have get personal like enjoyment use out of correct that, that that's called a prohibited transaction um you can't personally benefit the plan and the plan can't personally benefit you so for example you can't own investment real estate and have a mortgage that you are personally liable for 
you are benefiting personally the plan. You can't do that. So it has to be a non-recourse debt, which is much harder to get, of course, on a small rental property. So um, it, it goes both ways. You can't benefit from it and, and you can't render services or benefit it. That's why businesses don't qualify because you're working in the business. So if you own stock and you have nothing to do with it, that's fine. But you can't own stock and work for that company and, and expect that you're going to be okay in a qualified plan, especially if you control, you know, if you control the company. So uh, you do have to be very, very careful with that because if you have a prohibited transaction, so you want to talk to your accountant about this. If you had a pro, have a prohibited transaction, your retirement plan is completely blown. You have penalties, you have interest, and you have tax as if you distributed everything out prematurely. Okay, great. Um, all right, here are, I'm just going to start hitting you with a bunch of different questions. Um, can you rent out a single family home and keep the capital gain exclusion when you do decide to sell it if you don't mm -hmm. buy another home? So the, the rule is very clear. It's two out of five years. So you have to be in it two out of five years out of the last five years. You have to have lived in it for two out of the last five years. And if you do, then you qualify. If you don't, you don't. So if you rent it for four years after you leave and then you sell it, you're not going to qualify. Now you're still going to have to pick up the portion of the gain. Okay. That, um, you, cause you'll take depreciation when you rent it and you have to put, pull that back up back in no matter what. But if, if you rent it out, as long as you were, it was your personal residence for two out of five years, you should qualify. Okay, great. Um, here's a very specific question, but I think we can generalize it too, if you're not able to answer it specifically in this case. But as a part-time real estate agent with a full-time W-2, what is oh. the best tax strategy? Sole proprietor, LLC, other? Maybe in your answer, Tom, if you, if you can answer specifically, great, but just help people think through, how do you sort of determine which business structure to pick from a tax perspective? Well, I, I like the LLC from an from a legal perspective, what I like about an LLC is you get to choose how it's taxed. And so when you're in the case of a real estate agent, and I work with a lot of, we actually, my, um, my network of CPAs works with a lot of real estate agents who are very um, tied into um, the Keller Williams group. And um, generally, generally speaking, you're going to want to tax that LLC as an S corporation. Generally speaking, you want to tax that LLC as an S corporation. Um, so I, I'll give you that general and then have you talk to your accountant. But I would always, any business, I want to have an LLC or investment, I want to have an LLC. And then if it's an active business that I'm actively participating in, then I want that, that, I want that to be taxed as, a, as an S corporation to avoid self-employment tax on it. Okay, great. Um, Here's a question about LLCs. I just started an LLC last year and I only have expenses so far. Can I write off any of the expenses against my W-2 personal income? So here's the question. There's This is an interesting question and thank you for asking it, Kelly. Um, it depends on if you actually started the business. So you, you start a business when you're available to render services to clients or customers, not when you actually start making money, right? So you can have losses, but if you're still getting ready and you're not open to the public, those are called startup expenses. And once you start your business, 
you can take some or all of those. Um, and then you actually amortize, which is like depreciation. You actually spread the rest of them over 15 years. Um, but you don't get to actually take those expenses until you start business. Uh, interesting. So uh, when you, I'm just curious. So when you, you, you normally would amortize the startup expenses over the cost of 15 years, um, let's say in one scenario, you, you, you do all your invest your capital investing and everything before you turn your website on and yeah. you know let people call you. Um, in the other scenario, you put your website out there, but you're kind of doing them in parallel. Yeah, not in here. So uh, yeah, I I would say uh, you know I'm a, a kind of a bootstrap kind of guy, um, Adam. I I like the bootstrap approach anyway. So I want to start my business. I want to open up as soon as possible, um, and then. Uh, for example, on the equipment, if I've already opened up for business and let's say, and then I, and then I go buy my, uh, you know, my computer and my furniture and so forth after I've opened for business, as long as I've legitimately opened, then I get what's called bonus depreciation. I might be, or 179 deduction. So I might get a hundred percent of that the first year. Whereas if, you know, if my expenses are, um, over $5,000, then I really, I would rather not do them all before I start. I'd rather do as many as I can after I start. If my expenses, my, if my startup expenses are going to be more than $5,000, then I absolutely want to postpone those as long as I can until I've actually opened up my business. Okay. All right. Great. Great feedback there. Um, all right. Da, 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 da. This is going to be a similar question, I think. Um, we bought a rental in March of 2022, but we didn't have renters until September, new build. Can we treat it like a second home for the first five months? And should we? Well, you don't want to treat it as a second home because no longer are second, this second home mortgage interest deductible, only primary mortgage is. So you do want to treat it as rental. As soon as it was available to rent. So in other words, if you're going in doing a bunch of renovation and it's not available for rent, it's not, you haven't started your business until you actually put it out there on Airbnb or whatever, and it's ready available. But if you converted it immediately, you put up your Airbnb site, you got, you know, that's the startup part, right, of the rental business. And then um, even though you didn't have anybody come in, it took like three or four months or even five months to rent, doesn't matter. It's when it's available for customers. Okay. Um, I just saw a great question I'm going to ask in one sec, but let's, Let's tackle this one first. Um, how can I do a Roth IRA mega backdoor? I run as an independent contractor. Thanks. I'm not even sure what a mega backdoor is, but I've, I've heard about this sort of backdoor IRA. Can you describe it real quickly? And, and well, so here, here's what you do is you, you actually, you, you fund a pension plan. So let's say it's a SEP IRA. So an IRA um, is not, uh, you're, you're running a, basically what you're talking about is more like a profit sharing plan. So you set it up as a regular IRA or a SEP IRA or a pension plan, and you maximize the amount you put into it. And then you convert it to a Roth. Okay. After you've maximized the, the, the regular IRA contributions, actually the, the regular pension plan contributions, because that way you can get more into a Roth than if you set it up as a Roth IRA to begin with. And honestly, I have to look at those rules because they changed in December. So 
I, I would I would suggest you sit down with your um, CPA about that because the rules we got secure act secure 2.0 in December with the budget bill and we got uh, secure 1.0 was in 2000 uh, 2020 um, beginning of 2020 so we've got two relatively new um, pieces of legislation with respect to that and honestly that's a good question and I should look that up I should know that Okay. Uh, hey, somebody stumped the expert here. Um, let, let me use myself as a just a guinea pig for, for this topic, though. So um, in understanding when you would do a Roth conversion. So so a Roth IRA uh, lets you put in after tax income after tax. Yeah. Income. Right. And then you it, everything grows tax free and you get to withdraw it tax free. Um, but the government, you know, says, hey, you if you make too much money, you're not, we're not going to let you do that. And there are limits of how much you can put into a Roth IRA. So I haven't been able to, fortunately, I guess, I haven't been able to put money into a Roth IRA for a good while. Um, when would it make sense for me to take my SEP IRA and consider conversion? I, I give you two times. It makes sense. One is you have a really low income year. Okay. Let's say you have a hardship year. I mean, a lot of people that was 2020, right? Um, they had a really low year because of COVID. So that would have been the year to convert to Roth. Because remember, we have a marginal, ta a, a marginal tax system, which means that um, you've got some income taxed at zero, some taxed at 10%, some taxed at 12%, some taxed at 22%, all the way up to 37%, right? But those are brackets, right? It's called a progressive income tax. Well, what that means is, let's say you're normally like you probably are, Adam, in a 37% bracket, but one year you got a, just a, a rough year or you had big losses from real estate or something else. And so you're really like down to zero. Well, you'd like to take advantage of that 10%, 12%, 22% bracket. Okay, well, that's when you convert your Roth. So that's one time to convert it, um, your Roth. The other time to convert it is you don't want to be in the stock market you don't want to be in stocks and bonds anymore. And you want to get into a different type of investment, an alternative investment like oil and gas, energy, um, solar is the same, uh, solar, uh, oil and gas, or real estate. And you go, wow, now that's the other time to, to uh, convert because I might want to convert it. And then I don't want it because I don't want to have to pay capital gains tax. I don't want to have, you know, while I'm not going to get the, the tax benefits of real estate, at least I can convert it and uh, not have to pay, you know, the big tax um, on the capital gains because, again, my rates are low. Now, sometimes what you want to do is just pull it out. And this is a whole different question, Adam. And I, uh, people get hung up on the tax. Remember that you have an inherent tax liability in your IRA. Mm -hmm. It's built in. You have a liability. Just because you haven't paid it yet doesn't mean you don't owe it. You just owe it some later date. So the question is, okay, so if I pull that out, I'm going to pay taxes. Yes, you are. But unless your tax rate is going to be a lot lower when you retire, then it may not make that big a difference. And all you might have is a 10% penalty. So that's the other question is, are there, there are times when you actually, instead of converting to a Roth, where you actually might want to pull it out and because you're in a low bracket, you know, if you want to keep it in the stock market, convert it to a Roth 
And when you're in a lower tax bracket, if you don't want it in the stock market anymore, you might want to pull it out, pay the 10% penalty. So you get the tax benefits of real estate, energy, et cetera. Got it. Okay. Uh, really interesting. And again, this is, you're kind of underscoring why it's having a really good tax partner is so important because they can help you run all the numbers on this stuff. Right? Correct. Um, okay. Uh, I, I'm cruel to ask you this one. Um, Tom, when are real estate prices coming down? I'm so desperate for answers. I'm asking a tax guy, right? Um, <laughs> and and reason why I'm, I'm actually asking you this is you work with a ton of people who invest in real estate, right? Um, and and so um, I, we we very well may be looking at a period here where prices might be coming down for you know a, a good period of time. Um, I'm just curious. Does that sort of are there any sort of of insights from a tax perspective, given a market like that, that you would share? No, but I do. I do. I do pay a lot of attention, like you do, um, Adam. So I actually, I'll get. I'm happy to share my views on this. Um, right now, there seems to be a big disconnect between buyers and sellers. Mm -hmm. Okay, so buyers think well, prices should be down because interest rates are up, and sellers aren't ready to lower prices yet. Right. So I, I personally think it's going to take, you know, some markets, they're already coming down. Uh, I, I, I believe in Phoenix, they're already starting to come down, but it, it really depends on how hot your market are. So as, as we all know, prices are, uh, particularly on houses, they're a function of supply and demand. And so if you don't have a lot of supply and you've got a lot of demand, it may not matter what the interest rate is. Yeah, potentially. And look, we, we've duped out here on the channel. Um, I was just curious if there's any sort of tax angle to the the, the view, but it sounds not really. Let me, no, let me. Let well, let me. Uh, from a tax standpoint, what I would tell you is we still have bonus depreciation. So bonus, so we're talking about rental property now. We're not talking about a house you live in or, mm -hmm. or your vacation home, right? We're talking about rental property um, or Airbnb property, which is also rental property, right? Um uh, also, a, you know, business property. Um, but when you, when you, when you look at, at rental property, we get a de deduction, um, 80% of the amount that you, that is allocated to the contents of the property and the land improvements of the property is deducted in the first year in 2023, 80% of that. Um, the rest of it's deducted over the normal depreciation rates. That comes down to 60% in 2024, 40% in 2025, et cetera, et cetera, until it gets down to zero in 2027. So um, that may be another reason. There is some tax pressure on people still buying because they get this big tax deduction, this bonus depreciation, which typically can be like at 80%, that can be as much as 20 to 25% of the cost of the property as a deduction, even though you borrowed 80% on it. So you could actually end up with a bigger deduction than your down payment because of the bank loan on the property. So that's, I do think the bonus depreciation probably puts some pressure, upward pressure on housing prices, certainly has put upward pressure on multifamily housing. That's a really interesting point. So we talk a lot in this channel about, you know, the low interest rates and the stimulus that the central authorities have been pumping into the system that has distorted housing prices, right? It's just been rocket fuel for them. Yeah. Haven't really covered so much the tax incentives, but you're saying there are some pretty substantial ones out well, there. Here's what you have to consider. that 99.5% of the tax law 
is incentives. There, it's actually a, a, a guide to reducing your taxes. So um, anytime the, the government wants something done, they put in tax incentives. I mean, look at the huge tax incentives for clean energy um, that were in the Inflation Reduction Act, right? Um, most of that bill outside the $80 billion to the IRS was for, was for um, green energy. And so what's happening? Well, now you have people moving on shore. You know, you have Tesla's moving their battery plants here. I mean, you have people buying um, uh, solar that would never have bought solar before, all because of the tax benefits, which, by the way, I don't know if you noticed, but literally like within days of the announcement of the Inflation Reduction Act credits, all of the car manufacturers raised their price by the amount of that electric car credit. <laughs> Almost all of them. So you talk about do taxes actually in put price in pressure? You can actually go back and document that, Adam. If you look at when Ford, for example, raised its prices by six to $8,000, it's a $7,500 credit, okay? Tesla raises prices. Everybody raised their prices. Now, they've brought them down since then because of a demand issue, right? And then, of course, Ford's got all sorts of problems with their batteries. But the, 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 the reality is the 2017 Tax Act that Trump and the Republicans enacted put huge upward pressure on housing, uh, especially multifamily housing. Um, now, it did get a lot more housing built. Okay, so that's two sides of it, right? Got a lot more housing built, but at the same time, it put upwards pressure on the prices. So um, you always have that tax, that tax stimulus effect. You know, you talk about stimulus from the central bank, where well, you have also have stimulus from the government, uh, from the standpoint of the tax stimulus. Right, right. No, that's that's super important uh, element that that we probably haven't yet given as much weight on this channel as we should. But now that we have you as a in our orbit here, Tom, uh, we'll be doing it with you more going forward. Um, all right. Uh, there's just a ton of questions here and I'm having to kind of scroll through all this. Um, one was a question, which I'll try to find here about, um, Airbnbs, which is if yeah. you are Airbnb your primary residence, mm. um, what can you get away with deductions on, and I'm sorry, I had it well, here I, somewhere. I, let, me give you, let me give you the broader answer there, because it could be vacation home, it could be anything, right? It's personal. The rule is that in order to get full deductions, that means depreciation deductions, um, which is the big deduction, right? Depreciation. In order to get the depreciation deduction, um, you can only use personally um, the property up to the lesser of 30 days or 10% of the amount of time you rent it out. So if you only rent it for hundred days, you can only use it personally for 10 days. All right. Otherwise you don't get the depreciation deduction at all. And you're basically at a break even, you get a break even, you still get, you, um, you, you can still take it up to the amount of the rent. Okay. But you can't create a loss with that deduction. Um, that's very important because typically depreciation will create a loss for us that we can use to offset other income. And that's why we like real estate. Um, but the other side of that is um, uh, if, if you only rent it for 14 days or less, you don't have to pick up any of the income. That's called the Augusta rule because of the master's tournament in Augusta, Georgia. Um, so if you rent it, let's say you, um, 
you know, for the Super Bowl. I mean, we had the Super Bowl here. I, I understand that uh, Rihanna paid $85,000 a night for her uh, Airbnb. Um, if you're lucky enough to be that person, guess what? That $85,000 a night was not taxable as long as they stayed under the 15 days. Unbelievable. So <laughs> that's a that's a pretty sweet deal. So you may want to just consider if you're not going to do the, if, if you're going to use it more than 10%, then you might want to look at, do I keep my rental if it's my primary residence under the, under the 15 days, 14 days or less? Wow, that's super interesting. So if you're sort of like a part-time Airbnb or you really might just want to say, let me just keep it under that limit and then yep. it's just all tax-free, right? Exactly. That's real tax-free income. All right. I think her question was specifically, and, and let's assume for a second they're doing it more than the, the minimum. Can you, can you do write-offs of the expenses or how do you, like, power again it's it, it, it's it, if you're if you're under the the 10 percent, then it's not then you can take all of it okay it's really just considered de minimis use but if you're over that you've got this proration issue so you really do have to be um careful about how much you use it and this is one again you're going to sit down with your accountant you're going to walk through let them run the numbers make sure that uh, the laws update all i can do is give you general education um but it's you've got a, a 10 percent 30-day rule and you want if you're going to be if you're going to use it for more than that personally then you want to sit down with your accountant and actually calculate out what your tax benefit's going to be okay and um uh, we've still got a ton of questions, Tom, but I'm going to have to start wrapping it up just time-wise. Um, so uh, last question, and I, I was trying to find it here. I, I can't uh, in the sea of, of, of this. Um, who knew we'd have you know over 400 people interested in talking taxes, Tom, but you make it really fascinating. Um, <clears throat> but the question that I was looking for was, um, Tom Wheelwright, what are the elements that you recommend somebody look for in a good CPA. This is it right here from Kelly Lindholm. What are some good questions to ask when searching for a good CPA? Well, first of all, I would refer you to chapter 23 of Tax-Free Wealth because in chapter 23 is all about how to find a good tax advisor. Um, most important thing is um, somebody who asks you good questions. Uh, <laughs> when I was actually, when I, when I was writing the book and uh, Robert Kiyosaki, our common friend, he, uh, he said, Tom, I want you to write down all the questions, you know, top 10 questions you should ask your CPA, a CPA when you're interviewing them. And I did that. That's in chapter 23. And, but then I added, I'm going, you know what? It's more important what questions they ask you because you don't know what questions you, you need to ask. And it's not your job to ask questions. The job of the, of your advisors is to ask questions, whether it's a legal advisor, financial advisor, or tax advisor. Their primary job is to ask good questions. And I think we pretty much know, Adam, when it's a good question and when it's not a good question. And uh, as long as we're getting good questions, they're about us and they're not just talking about themselves or, you know, not giving us. The other thing I would ask is, you know, are you working holistically with me or are you looking, are you just going to answer my questions? Because if they're just going to answer your questions, I would think twice about that. Unless you just don't have very many questions and you really don't care that much about taxes, but a holistic approach, which includes um, the tax, the wealth, the asset protection and the legacy. Those are the four elements, kind of we call them the four legs of the stool um, that you've really 
a good tax advisor, a good CPA will look at all four of those, whereas a typical tax advisor or preparer will only look at the tax side. Got it. All right. And hey, folks, I just put a link to Tom's book, Tax-Free Wealth, uh, there in the live chat if you're interested in going awesome. and get it, if you don't already have it. Um, I just want to reiterate on that point, Tom, um, something you said when you were on the earlier interview with me, where I, actually maybe we didn't even talk about that. We might have talked about it off air, um, but we were talking sort of about the current state of of the CPA market mm -hmm. and you know your firm, um, which I'll give you a chance to talk about in just a second. But you you are very holistic, right? You're you're right. all about hey, let's partner together. Let's meet at the beginning of the year. Let's really understand who you are and what your goals in life are. And let us help sort of design a plan for you from a tax perspective, right? So there are, sure. you know, when it makes sense to put something in a qualified account or not, and when, and when to take a distribution and when to own some of these other assets that give you bonus depreciation or huge tax shields. Um, and, uh, but that doesn't map to most people's experience with a CPA. You know, basically the CPA just says, just just call me when you've got your forms, you know, your, all your inputs for for the returns, and uh, you know, I'll take it from there, right? And so it's very passive, it's very reactive, it's not proactive. Um, and one of the things I remember you telling me, if I heard you right, was sort of like there is a mentality, not amongst everybody, but uh, amongst you know a percentage of CPAs where they actually don't want to share too much because their mentality is i want my customers to be dependent on me right yeah we we call that the black box syndrome we actually have a name for it we call it the black box syndrome so i've got this big black box and i've spent years and years and years my case over 40 years and everything i've learned is in in that black box and if i share what's inside that black box with you you won't need me anymore and we've actually found of course very selfishly i found quite the opposite i find that clients the more I share, the more education we do with our clients, um, the more successful they are. And the more successful they are, the more the more complicated they get, the more complicated they get, the more fees they pay us. So it's actually a very selfish point of view, but I think that when you put clients first and you're really focused on the clients instead of the CPA, then you end up with a much happier client. But I actually think the CPA is also much better off. Unfortunately, I'd say that's probably a good 80% of CPAs out there. It's a it's a very sad to me, um, but that seems to be the case in my experience. Okay. Um, well, Tom, I want to give you um, a chance to just talk a little bit about your firm, WealthAbility. Um, and, and folks, actually, before I let Tom do that, <clears throat> um, let me know if you like this format of bringing in a domain expert like Tom to do you know, a timely and topical live Q&A like this. Um, if you find this useful, you know, we'll do this with other experts throughout the year, too, when there's, you know, Things that are very timely or i know a lot of you have questions about so if you have enjoyed this would like to see more of this type of stuff let me know in the live chat or if you're watching the replay let me know in the comments section below um, but tom if you can maybe just talk really briefly about the wealth ability model for folks that have you know because you basically you have uh you've got this firm wealth ability that does a lot of education around the tax issues we're talking about but you are plugged into a I was going to say a nationwide network of CPAs, but I think it's actually a global network of CPAs, right? Where people are looking for a good CPA, they can reach out to you guys and you can help them find one if they don't yeah, like the one they're currently actually, with. Actually, it's, it's a little reverse of that. The CPAs in the network are plugged into us. 
we're not plugged into them because wealthability is primarily a system. It's a system for uh, 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 wealth um, creation and tax reduction. Now we don't take people's money. We're not investment advisors. You know, we leave that to guys like you and, and your team, Adam. What we do though, is we do want to understand what are you going to do with your money? First question we're going to ask is what are you going to do with your money? Well, if you say, I don't know, well, okay, we might some way, we either going to refer them to, to you or we're going to look at, okay, well, let's talk about, you know, what you might want to do and get, get you some education on that because it's just, if you, if I don't know what you're going to do with your money, I can't help you from a tax standpoint. I'm very right. limited. Well, I can help you. So we've actually developed a system. So um, I kind of think I, I equate it to um, weather, right? The reason we can predict weather is because we've identified weather patterns. And once you create, when you identify weather patterns, you can actually create a formula for predicting that weather, right? And then you can create a system for really handling the weather and handling all the weather. Well, we, you can do the same in any discipline and tax is one of those at least as complicated as the weather, right? Um, but there are patterns in the tax law. And so what we've done is we've created a system. Uh, we, we've identified the patterns, created, um, created a formula, put it into a system. And then what we do is we have 65 uh, CPA firms um, around the US and Canada. And uh, they learn from us. They use our system. They actually use our software. They use our system um, to help create, like you were talking about, that plan of action, that strategy for reducing taxes. And, um, and then we make sure that we're also looking at the wealth, the asset protection, and the legacy um, where, you know, our expertise is tax. But like you say, um, Adam, you really do need the accountant to run the numbers. And that's why we use CPAs for this. And frankly, um, with our system, somebody else could use it, but they wouldn't understand the complexities of the tax law and they wouldn't understand the um, they wouldn't understand how to run the numbers. So that's why we use CPAs for it. Um, but it is a it, it's a, it's a very big network. We um, somebody says, I like my CPA, but they're never going to get this stuff and you can come to wealthability and we will um, match you up with somebody who has trained on our system. They spent at least, anywhere from three to six months to a year or more training on our system. I train them every month. And then we make sure that they're the right fit for you. So if you're like just starting out, we get you with somebody who they specialize in people just starting out. If you're really complex, um, then we get you with somebody who uh, specializes in really complex. If you're real estate, we get you with somebody who specializes in real estate. If you're a dentist, we want somebody who understands dentistry, you know, the dentist business, whatever that is. We want, to we want to make sure that not only do we get you with the wealthability system, but we do want to get you with the right provider. All right, great. Um, I'm already seeing some comments here, Tom, saying that you're going to get some knocks on the door from a number of the uh, viewers here. One who says he's there in Scottsdale, he says he's going to walk right over to your folks right there. Um, one is asking, uh, you mentioned Canada. They're asking, do you have any partners in Australia at this point? Not yet. Not yet. Um, we we hope within the next couple of years to have um, partners in the UK and Australia. Okay, great. Um, well, I do want to let folks know who are interested. Um, your team kindly provided uh, a URL for wealthy on viewers. Um, there you go. Knowing that they have watched, your, most of them probably watched your previous video, maybe coming from this. So they'll already be sort of pre-programmed to receive um, folks who've got the, the wealthy on viewer background. 
Just go to wealthion.com slash wealthability if you want to learn more and then schedule you know, a free discussion with these guys to see if you might be a good fit. Tom, you're yeah, not. And what, what, what we'll do, um, Adam, is we'll actually do a free review of um, prior year's tax returns and let you know if we see anything. We don't always. OK, but uh, if we see something that comes up or something you could do better, we'll we'll let you know. And there's there's no charge for that evaluation. All right. Well, that's um, can't, can't get better than that. All right. Well, Tom, look, it's been a great hour, little plus. Uh, so thanks for the extra minutes here. Um, but super helpful, super useful. Feedback seems really strong in the comment section here. Would love to have you back on the program uh, again at some point just to kind of, you know, I know there are lots of other big tax topics that uh, we've yet to really roll up our sleeves and delve into, um, but you're just a, a great addition to this channel and helping people think of another important uh, dimension in terms of how we can build wealth. The, the tax angle, for sure, I think just gets way uh, too little attention. And uh, you know, with, with with your efforts to build awareness of it, but with your expertise and willingness to come on this channel. Hopefully we can get a lot more people making a lot um, smarter decisions around how to lower their tax footprint. Well, I, I appreciate that. And Adam, um, you know, for most people, taxes are their biggest single expense. Um, they can be up to 40, 50% of their income. Mm -hmm. So they're, they're not going to have any other expense. Not even a mortgage is as big. And we always tell people, if you're looking for money, you want more cash flow then the quickest way to put cash in your to put money in your pocket is actually to reduce your taxes. It's actually easiest, quickest. Um, with entrepreneurs, we frequently find that we can uh, reduce their taxes by 10, 20, 30, even 40% or more within three months. So there's just a lot of opportunity there. And uh, not always, but somebody who's willing to work with us instead of just ask us questions. Um, because remember, it's the question is not, is it deductible? The question is, how do I make it deductible? Right. And once you start changing your mindset around taxes, you can actually have a major lifelong impact on your tax bill. That, that's great. So yeah, I've got this vision of the average person's, you know, just walking around as a leaky bucket. And we're always talking about how to get more water in the bucket, which, hey, we should. But a great question is just to say, hey, maybe we should plug as many of those leaks as we can first. For sure. Yeah. Yep. All right, Tom. Well, thanks so much. Uh, really look forward to having you back on the program here. Folks, if you've enjoyed this, please do me a favor and support this channel by hitting the like button, then clicking on the red subscribe button as well as that little bell icon right next to it. Um, again, Tom, it's been great. Everybody, thanks so much for watching.